creativity is not what I think a lot of people, especially in the, on the on the kitchen side of it, think it is. Creativity, yeah. creativity is how do I reimagine this? How do I, how do I do something that's been done before but better? What's up, Zach Oates here, author, entrepreneur, and customer relationship guru. Welcome to Give an Ovation growth strategies for restaurants and retailers, where we find industry leaders to share their secrets to grow your business. This podcast is sponsored by Ovation, the actionable guest feedback tool that works on or off premise and is easy, real time, and actually drives revenue. Learn more at OvationUp.com. Welcome to another edition of Give and Ovation. I am joined today by Andy Forsheimer, the CEO of Tastemaker Acquisition Corp, a hospitality industry-focused SPAC who has a board seat at some incredible tables, to be honest. U.S. Foods, the Culinary Institute, Schlesinger Library at his alma mater of Harvard, and uh, Upward Projects Restaurant Group, just to name a few of the things that Andy is doing. And uh, Andy, thank you and your busy schedule for making time to come on to Give an Ovation. My pleasure, Zach. So first of all, I think <laughs> time management tips, you have any for our listeners? Because you obviously are able to, to juggle a lot at once. Um, you know, as uh, right now, it's life is so weird with COVID that it's, it's kind of hard to put a pin in it. Um, you know, Pre-COVID, running big companies, things like that. My the, the only good time management tip I give is is I would have a yellow legal pad next to me, and, and no, I would have. I actually had two. I had one on stuff that I had to get done today, and one on you know don't forget to get around to this. And I I didn't leave the office until the first one was all crossed off. And sometimes that meant I got home at four in the afternoon, which was a nice day. And sometimes it meant I was in the office at midnight. But just you know don't leave that stuff till the next day. That's my time management tip. I think, I think that's good. I used to do that with uh, post-it notes and I just leave it on my computer. Anyway, I switched to digital, but I think that that concept though, of beginning of the day, get your task list in there. And then I like that idea though. So sometimes you would actually leave early if you were done with your list. I cross everything off on the list. Then, well, you know, when you cross everything off on the list, or if the stuff on the list is just making you like bored or, or nauseous, then you turn to the big list and you say, oh, you know, we, we said we would get this done this year kind of thing. And you put it and you put a dent in that. So maybe if I was done by four, I'd, I'd spend a couple hours on, you know, some bigger project that, that needed to get accomplished. But but there's a, you know, there's a saying there's what's urgent and what's important. And, you know, it, it's a it's a common mistake of CEOs to to mistake what's urgent for what's important. So yeah. you, have to, you have to make time for the important things. Yeah. Or you get so buried by the urgent that you, you can't even see the important, right? Your, your, your head's down swimming, swimming, swimming. And then when you a look week, up, you're a like, week shoot. By, exactly. A week goes by, a month goes by. You've, you've dealt with everything that gets thrown at you, but you've made no progress on, you know, your, your company as a living, breathing thing. Yeah. Now, some of our listeners may not be familiar with what a SPAC is. Um, real quick, do you just want to I'm explain? Stay that way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, the SPAC is a uh, it's 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 a company that's formed to just hold onto a bunch of money and go look for another company. Um, the Special Purpose Acquisition Corporation is a public company. You have to go through all the, the hell that the SEC puts you through to become public. So now you're a public company with a pile of money and no particular 
uh, reason for being. And you go out looking for a company that has a reason for being, but doesn't have money and isn't public. So, and then you find them, you, you, you do a merger and the comp, the target company instantly becomes public with a giant pile of money. So that's the, um, it's meant to make life simpler for uh, companies that are sort of, you know, fast growing, not your typical public um, uh, IPO ready company, but somebody who feels like they, they, you know, they want the access to money and the access to, uh, uh, you know, uh, credibility that being a public company gives. Them. So That's, it's ba- yeah, it's basically well, now like, your yeah. listeners can all forget that now because unless they <laughs> own a company worth a billion dollars, it's not that relevant to them. So. Yeah, and I think that it's it's just cu- interesting. It's like a uh, it's a grown up search fund, right? It and, is. A fund. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. So so what types of uh, when you're looking for a company, are you guys looking specifically for technology or for restaurants? What do you look at in, in you know all, all of the above, none of the above? We 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 obviously um, have better entree into restaurants. We have good credibility with the people who run restaurants, the people who back restaurants. Uh, so that's pretty obvious. But there's some tech companies that we've talked to, some distribution companies, suppliers. Um, really what we've been focusing on is where do we add some value because a check is a check and these same people could take, you know, money from Goldman Sachs and Goldman Sachs presumably has a much easier time writing the check. Um, but then they just sit back and say, okay, do your thing. Whereas, uh, my SPAC is me, but it's also, uh, my co-CEO Dave Pace, who was the CEO of Jamba. He's the, uh, chairman of Red Robin. Uh, Rick Federico, who was the longtime CEO of P.F. Chang's, um, Starlet Johnson, who was the president of David Buster's. So within the um, SPAC itself, there's a ton of talent and there's a ton of, of connections and a, a ton of public company experience. So, you know, you've got some really cool tech company, you, you, you find yourself public, it's a different world. It's, 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 it's scary out there. So doing it in conjunction with a group of people who are, you know, they'll, they'll stay, you know, they'll stay shareholders, they'll stay on the board for a while. And it's in their interest to say, okay, you know, this is how this is done, you know, or, or let me get you my old CFO to walk you through these questions. So there's a lot of value that a good SPAC adds in addition to just uh, having a, a pot of money. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is always nice, but if you don't put it to the right use, it's going to quickly turn sour, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and it's a question whether a company that's run by somebody who says, I don't need any help, I know exactly what I'm doing, is a good mm-hmm. candidate to back. Maybe they're not. Yeah. Now, what what are some attributes that you would look for in terms of, say, I'm a restaurant owner, operator, um, maybe I'm not geared up to, to be a SPAC, but I feel like the things that make a, a good candidate for a SPAC, some of these metrics, some of these habits, some of these systems um, are are good for you know, good for anyone to really implement. What, what are some of those systems or best practices that you wish more restaurants knew? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, you get kind of two levels of it. Like you have sort of startup culture stuff and then you have public culture stuff. Public culture stuff tends to be more, we've got this dialed in, we can do this. We've done this a thousand times. We can do it a thousand more. It'll always come out exactly the same. When we open a restaurant, it's going to cost us this much and it's going to make this much sales and this much money. That's a good public company. A good public company knows, knows their playbook, doesn't change it too much because the worst thing you can do as a public company and a traded stock 
is to go, oops, we thought this was going to work, but it doesn't. Right. <laughs> and how, how many locations do you think like ballpark finger to the wind um, proves that to do that? Good question. Right. Um, I think it's not just locations. It's, it's, it's geography. Mm. So I think you have to, there's a company I won't name names that has 60 restaurants in Texas, uh, big numbers, great, you know, great average unit volumes, good management, all that stuff, uh, ready to go public, but they opened a bunch of restaurants outside Texas. Those didn't do that well. So it's okay. Um, we thought we knew exactly what we were doing, but clearly we knew exactly what we were doing in Texas. Interesting. Right? So, so that happens a lot. And then, so, so that's the set of attributes you want as a public company. As a private company, throw all that out the window. So you've got six restaurants, you know, people love them. You make good money. Everybody's, you know, everyone's happy all the time. Um, the attributes of that company could be completely different. And, and, and so if you're taking an investment from somebody, they may not look for you to know exactly what's going on with every new opening. Uh, it's, it's early, right? I mean, you're probably still being run by the founder and, you know, some guy who was the chef who you promoted to the culinary director because all of a sudden you had a bunch of chefs around and you didn't want to deal with them. Uh, your old bookkeeper, CFO. No, but that's a pretty typical six yeah. company, right? Everybody's mm -hmm. in over their head. Everybody's doing something they've never done before. Um, and so there's no expectation that you've got the whole playbook written and you can predict the future. Uh, it's much more about, you know, do you have lightning in the bottle somewhere? Is there something amazing here that, you know, maybe you can bring in a team of people who've done this a hundred times and they can professionalize it or teach you how to train it or, or, you know, do the books for it. That, that's, that almost becomes less important. So, so when you're looking at smaller companies, they have to be professional to the extent that they're not just winging it, but it's tough. If you have six units and you're in three States, for example, tough to be winging it. Right. So, yeah. so, so, so then innovation still matters. Uh, Excitement still matters. Um, people have to. You know, people love working there. Customers will wait in line for two hours. That that stuff really matters at a smaller level. And I think that you know, if if you were to look back, what are some things that you wish that you knew when you were first starting? If you're talking to Andy a few years ago, before you uh, got all these board seats, and you know, know, like what what advice do you wish that you would have told yourself? Well, yeah, you gotta be more specific. I had a bunch of, you know, so I was a chef for 15 years and then I was a single unit restaurant owner for a little while. And then I had a little growing chain and then I did that for a while. Then I had a private equity investor. So that was a new, a different arc. Uh, then we got big and I was a kind of a public, you know, not a public company, but I was a restaurant company CEO who sat behind a desk instead of cooking. Uh, I did that Let's for a little while. So yeah, let's let's go. Let's go to the restaurant. You know, you have you have your one unit is before you took on funding. Um, right. Yeah, let's let's go to that. What did I wish I knew? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, you know, it was funny. I was up at Harvard doing a, a career services day, and I had a bunch of kids, and they were all foodies, and some wanted to be winemakers, and one they were asking about sort of my my life at Harvard, and they said, you know, we we haven't graduated yet. We want to do what you did. What are there any like classes that we should take? 
And I said, yeah, you should take a basic accounting class. And you could just mm. see all their faces fall. They were like, no, I want to take a wine tasting class. Yeah, no. And, and I was I was doing the panel with three other people, three other grads who were in like the wine industry, the food industry. And they're all like nodding their head and, you know, going, yep, yep, that's right. That's right. And, and the poor kids, I felt bad for them. But I didn't know how to add, you know, numbers on a ledger until I was 40. Right. I had a bookkeeper who, who left and there was nobody else and I couldn't afford a, a good one. So I just taught myself how to do accounting. Um, so it would have been nice to know how to do that before I started. So that's one thing. Um, I always tell people starting the restaurant business that you have to be able to do every job in the play. Like you have to be able to bartend, you have to be able to cook, you have to be able to, you know, bust tables. I did know how to do that. So that, that wouldn't have been a piece of advice. Um, I think you know, looking from where I am now, I would say, you know, I used to think sort of the, the, the creativity was, was the important part. Um, and then I thought, no, the operations are actually the important part. The creativity doesn't matter. Um, and now I'm, I'm sort of, I've landed somewhere in the middle, <laughs> right? I, I, I just, coming from a world of chefs, I just assumed that everybody woke up in the morning with 10 ideas and, and they don't, they don't. They, yeah. They, Creativity matters, but but creativity tempered with um, flexibility, what people in 2020 called pivoting, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it, if you are creative, but only for yourself, you're not a good restauranter. You Interesting. Know, yeah, like you really do need to be able to step in someone else's shoes and like experience what they experience and be open to the fact that some people think cilantro tastes like soap. And Exactly, you know, yeah. Yeah, the, the restaurateurs who say what I'm doing is amazing. I don't understand why these idiots don't understand it. Don't last very long, right? No, you, they end up on kitchen nightmares, you know, and there's this delusional restaurants. No, I think that I think that's really great advice. I think that something that truly everyone should really be thinking about is having that balance, that left brain, right brain balance to because you, you do need both to run a business and especially a startup where, you know, the food is art right? Uh, ingredient combinations is, is an art form. But on the other hand, you know, art without order is just can be chaos. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, let's look at some of the most successful companies, right? You look at a Starbucks, for example, right? The, the arguably the most successful um, restaurant concept of, of the last 50 years or a Shake Shack. These are derivative. These are not particularly creative. There's nothing creative about a cup of coffee. Howard Schultz had a good cup of coffee in Italy. And he said, I'd like to do that back home in Seattle. And he started Starbucks. And Danny Meyer said, you know, I miss the burgers and the crinkle fries I used to have in St. Louis. So I'm going to do that outside my office. Right. So, so the idea that you have to be incredibly creative um, to do a fantastic uh, restaurant is, is just not true, right? I mean, it's nice. Creativity is cool, but, but um, creativity is not what I think a lot of people, especially in the, on the, on the kitchen side of it, think it is. Creativity, yeah. creativity is how do I reimagine this? How do I, how do I do something that's been done before, but better? What's a little, what's a little tweak that'll make this pop as opposed to how do I do something that nobody has ever seen before, which is, which is very creative, but not particularly interesting to the wide world in general. Um, Van Gogh, not Van Gogh, sorry, I take that back. Van Gogh is really creative, but um, Rembrandt, 
painted exactly the same kind of, of portraits that everybody around him had been doing for a while. They didn't look any different than anybody else's portraits, except eh, try this little bit with the white paint and, and you know, make the light pop on his cheek. Right. So, so a great restaurant is more like that than like a Van Gogh. It's, it's, it's a combination. Half is what I want to give you and half is what you want to get. Um, yeah. I love, I, oh, speaking, you mentioned Rembrandt. So I just have to mention the night watch yep. is, I mean, it's unreal. You, you yeah. sit there, you look at that painting and everything looks the same, but the way that he uses light. Right. And I think that, I think that's a great way. It's like, look, you don't have to reinvent the French fry. Just do a really good French fry. Right. I hope, by the way, I hope in and out is listening because <laughs> your French fries are terrible. Okay. <laughs> so Andy, what, what would you say is uh, the most important aspect of guest experience nowadays? Oh, wow. You're catching me in the middle of a fight between two of my companies, my, my two old companies, which I'm on the board of both of them. One of them has QR codes on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have to order with your phone. And he's convinced that this is the greatest guest experience in the world for everybody under a certain age because they don't want to interact with waiters and they can have their food immediately. And when they're done, they, they pay by touching their phone and they leave. So, you know, he, he's doing that because he thinks it's an amazing guest experience. And my other CEO of my other company thinks this is a terrible guest experience and, and people crave human contact and everybody would be much happier if they left their phone at home and a restaurant was a place that you could get away from that kind of thing. So giving you a straight answer to that question is hard, right? I'd love to Uh say the answer to what a great guest experience is. Um, You know, my own personal predilection, which is probably not the same as Thomas Keller's uh, or, or any number of other people is that a great guest experience is frictionless. Uh, yes. I spent my whole life in restaurants trying to get to that frictionless place. And by frictionless, I mean, it can't cost too much, right? It shouldn't be hard to get a reservation. Even if they're yeah. full, you should be told, come on in, let's, let's do what we can, right? Um, the food should be interesting, but not off-putting in any way. Mm-hmm. The... Um, it, the experience is supposed to be something that you can just dive right into without ever feeling stupid or inadequate or poor or, or any of these things, right? Which, which is, which is the complaint I have with restaurants where I don't have a great experience, which is just that there's at some point in this, it felt like work, hmm. right? Interesting. Like it, felt like, it felt like work or an awkward eighth grade dance, right? <laughs> so I don't want to go over and ask, anyone to dance right now that's that I, mean, I don't want the hostess to like me so she gives me an outdoor table it's like no that's annoying yeah don't do, don't do that and and it's and it's so easily solved right i mean we used to tell people we, in in all the restaurants we built we never had podiums i think eventually we did but i hate them um but we never had a, like a, a hostess podium that a hostess was behind right because we th- we just felt symbolically the idea that, okay, here I am, I've walked in and here's the hostess and there's this table, there's this large block in between us. I just, I just found symbolically that that was, that's a terrible way to do it, right? It just sets you up in this adversarial setting. So we would put the, the, the host stand would be on the side. So the hostess was actually alongside you talking. Oh, and, okay. And, and we would coach them. We would tell them, look, I mean, this, this has to be, let's say 
let's say it's Valentine's Day and somebody walks in and says, I'd like two people at 730. Right. You're not going to laugh at them. You're not going to, you know, raise your eyebrows and go, really, what kind of moron are you? You're not going to do any of that stuff. Right. I mean, this is a this is a sincere. This person doesn't work in the restaurant industry. They may never have had a serious girlfriend before to know that they don't do this when you go out on Valentine's Day. You don't know these things, right? Yeah. So the direct response is to put your arm around their shoulder, that metaphorically, because you know, who knows? Right? Social distancing. But, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but, but metaphorically, you put your arm around the shoulder and say, This is crushing me because there's nothing in the world I would like more than to give you a table for two people at 7.30. But, you know, I just have reservations and people backed up on a waiting list beyond that. And, you know, I don't think we are going to be able to solve this. I'm really sorry. I would love it if you came back tomorrow. I'd love if you came back the next day. Whenever you come back, here's my number. You know, please call me. Right? That's the right response. Yeah. The right the right response makes you feel, even though you asked for a table of two at 7.30 on Valentine's Day, you leave feeling like a perfectly adequate human being who hasn't made any mistakes, right? That's, that to me is a great guest experience. And, and you know, Danny Meyer writes about it in, in Setting the Table and, and is well known, right, rightfully so, well known for this because, the, you know, the ability to make people leave your restaurant feeling better about themselves is, is, is to me sort of the, the, the quintessence of a good guest experience. Love I, went, I, I went there feeling like this. I came out feeling like this. Yeah. More than just filled, but fulfilled, right? Yeah. Like there, there needs to be something there because they, they will forget the food. They'll remember the experience. And it, it totally. depends on the kind of restaurant, right? There are restaurants that make a living selling fuel. Uh-huh. Raising yeah. cane makes a living selling fuel. I went in hungry. I came out not hungry. This was a good, you know, this was a good transaction. Right? But fine. but but it's here's the thing: the the price and the convenience. I, I was doing this. Um, I was I was speaking, and I asked people, "Why are you loyal to your restaurants?" Right, and the fact that the food and the service was good is like table stakes. You can't survive without, without that. And so what is it about? It's about convenience. Why does someone go to one coffee shop over the other? You know, maybe it's going to be because they like the bartender or the, I mean, the, the barista. Um, but most of the time, it's going to be about what's most convenient for me for the price. And I think that that experience. It depends. That can- it depends. If you're, if you're $300 ahead and have two Michelin stars, then people will drive to the top of a mountain and it's not, and it's not convenient. Um, exactly. You know, where do you live on that scale? Right. And, and we used to always say at Barcelona that, that, uh, you know, the product we sell, um, you know, I, 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 this was an exercise I did 10 years ago to Vistage and, and, and this guy like challenges all to think about what it is that we sell versus how we sell it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he and I had been talking a while and he said, so what do you sell? And I said, uh, wine, beer. He goes, no, that's how you sell it. He said, because he said, you know, here's he gave me some examples. This place sells wine and beer. This place was, well, do, do you do the same thing? I was like, no, definitely not. So, okay. So what is it that you sell? And, you know, I had to go off in a corner and think about this for a while. It was part of the exercise. And I came back and I, and I, I 
put my hand out. So he put his hand out and I shook his hand and I said, thank you, I had a great time. And I said, that's what we sell. We sell that, right? Um, and the way we sell it is with food and wine and waiters and bartenders and you know napkins or whatever else. But 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 you know that that was a really interesting revelation to me. And ever since then, you know, and I and I would challenge general managers. I would say if somebody came in our restaurant and ordered a glass of water and sat there for two hours and left and said, "Thank you, I had a great time." Have we been successful? They would say, yes. I'd say, great. So where's the food and wine? Why do we, how, how is selling food and wine like some necessary component to what we do? It's not. It's not. Interesting. I mean, if I, don't, if I can't drink, if I'm on medication and I go to the bar and, you know, I'm talking to my friends and two hours go by and somebody says, do you want a beer? I can't. I'm, I'm not drinking tonight. In fact, I'm fasting because I have to go to the doctor tomorrow. That's okay. Yeah. Our restaurant has, has fulfilled its purpose and we didn't sell anything. Going to Clayton Christensen, what is the job to be done? You know, yeah. and, and I think that uh, that's, that's a great point because it really is about what is the guest expectations? What are they looking to get? And are we fulfilling that? And when I go to Raising Cane's, I'm not looking for a, a wine bar experience. I'm looking for convenience, fast, good, right? When, when I'm going to, you know, a fancy wine bar, like I want a great charcuterie, but I want to try cheeses from around the world. I want to feel, I want to treat my wife. Like there's, there's lots of jobs to be done there. Well, if you went to a, a fancy wine bar, I'll, I'll challenge you on this, right? Let's say you go to a fancy wine bar and instead of the waiter or wherever else, there's a big vending machine and you put your credit card in and you push a button and out pops a really good charcuterie plate. And then you go to another vending machine and you push a button and out comes a really great glass of wine. And you take these back to the table. And when you're done, you take the empty dishes and bring them over or you just leave them on the table and you leave. Right. Is this, is that a perfectly good experience? Is that perfectly good value for money? Because if the answer is yes, then you're right. That's why you go there. But if the answer is not yes, then that's not why you go there. Yeah, no, I think it's a great point, right? It's, it's like what, um, yeah, because it gets, it's not just about the charcuterie board, right? It's about how do you feel during the process. And if I'm paying for $300, I want to walk out of there feeling like I got a massage, right? Like I, I want to feel, I want to feel like I was, I was treated. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's, that's a really good point. Like taking that step back, no matter what your restaurant is and making sure that you're being realistic with where do you fall on this spectrum what is the expectations that you are putting out there as a brand? And what are the, what's the expectations as the guests when they're coming in? And, and I think it's about can't fulfilling go wrong. that. You can't go wrong underestimating where you are in this scale. So if you are French Laundry and you just drop food off the table and don't say anything, it's like, okay, I gave you the food and the wine, right? Here's your, here's your bill. You're welcome. <laughs> you will fail, right? Yes. But, but... If you're Chick-fil-A and you're really just filling people with calories like, like Raising Cane's is, right? But you're acting like your French laundry in terms of, of your interactions with people, you won't fail. You can't really go wrong overcompensating on the experience side. That's, yeah. You There's can't go wrong overcompensating the service. I think, I think the only challenge, right? The, the only thing that people would push back against is, 
I can't, I can't find and keep the staff that's good enough that does that. <laughs> that's your management style and how much you pay. Yeah. Right? That, that has nothing to do with, with what you serve. Because Chick-fil-A doesn't seem to have any trouble getting training and keeping people to serve, you know, little chicken sandwiches in a to-go container. So there's nothing intrinsic about fast food that says you can't find and keep good people. That's, that's nonsense. Yeah. I like that. So what are some things that you have seen or tried that have been uh, successful lately? I was in a place that serves little teeny portions of pasta not that long ago, which I love. I think that's an amazing idea because I always look at, I like pasta and I look at a menu and there's always more than one that I want to try. And there's but, such big portions usually. Big portions that you can't try more than one. It doesn't, I mean, it's, it would be disgusting. <laughs> and even the half portions, you can't take a half portion of pasta and then say, okay, I'm gonna have another pasta now. I mean, maybe some people can, I, I can't. Um, but man, three, four bites, I'm all over it. like that. I really like the um, trend towards a combination of sort of Vietnamese and, and bar, like fun bar with, with um, Southeast Asian food. That's something every now and then Hawkers does it. There's a couple people up by me who do it. It's, it's, it's a missing thing. I mean, there's, there's, there's very high-end Asian and there's very low-end Asian, mm-hmm. but Asian with a fun bar, that's a concept I like. Boy, I mean, I, there's some people who are just doing such a great job. One of the companies I'm on the board of, um, you know, uh, Upward Project, they have a, a brand called Postino that does just beautiful restaurants. Do, does their their gig is bruschetta. They have like oh, eight seriously of, eight different kinds of bruschetta. They've got you know they're they're it's like for it's a fifteen dollar plate and it's big enough for two people to share. Everything's everything's kind of sharing, kind of Italian and kind of sharing. Um, prices are reasonable. Uh, I love that. They're none in Salt Lake City, but close Denver and Arizona. So, oh, okay. Well, I'll be in Arizona twice this year. So I got to okay. try them out. So Andy, who, who is someone that deserves novation in the restaurant industry today? Who, who is someone that we should be following? You should be following. Well, you should definitely be following uh, Lauren Bailey, who's the CEO of Postino because she has an awesome Instagram. Uh, you should follow uh, Wisely, which is the uh, tech company. Um, uh-huh that I've been working with is, is phenomenal. They yeah, um, just, just spoke uh, on a panel with their CEO. We did. Okay. Yeah. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. What they're doing is, is really cutting edge. Really. Yeah, love it. You know, I like what Michael Astoria is doing over at Ann pizza um, just in terms of, of, you know, how he thinks about labor force and how he thinks about, you know, restaurant place in the, the, uh, the, the employee uh, world, which I think is important. Um, so he's always worth following. I follow a guy uh, whose um, Instagram tag is Chef's Wild, who is a forager and, and hunter who, you know, restaurant chef, but does amazing things with he only, you know, only collects and, and shoots what he eats and then turns it into, you know, a year's worth of meals. Um, so I love that. Uh, I follow my kids who are shiitake mushroom farmers. Uh, they no grow, way. Yep. They grow the best quality. It's, it's a Japanese um, method uh, that, that they use. They grow them on oak logs and they sell to the best restaurants in the Northeast. Uh, <laughs> That's awesome. My food supply. Um, who else? I follow um, Christian Petroni, who's old, old, old employee now, TV Food Network, uh, uh, crazy man, does 
old school, old school, grew up in the Bronx. His, his gig is uh, authentic Arthur Avenue, you know, red sauce, mozzarella made by table side, the whole thing, which, which I grew up eating. So I, I love that. Hey, th- this is uh this has been awesome, Andy. How do people find you, follow you? Uh, I'm Bark Wine, B-A-R-C-W-I-N-E on Instagram. Um, and how do they find me? Well, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I'm very hard to spell last names, but I'm not that hard to find. I, I actually field a fair amount of inquiry sort of in my, in my interstitial spare time, which is lumpy. Uh, I talk to a lot of young restaurateurs. It's one of the things I like doing. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a mentor for a dozen small restaurant groups. And I teach at Columbia uh, Business School, the class of, you know, people who want to start restaurants and, and, and grow in the business. So that's, that's something I like doing. So that's awesome. Encourage people. Awesome. Well, Andy, for being so willing to give back and for giving us insights to how powerful an incredible board member can be today's ovation goes to you. Thank you so much for joining us on Given Ovation. My pleasure, Zach. Glad you're with us today and thank you. Thank you to the risk takers, the troublemakers, the crazies who are keeping this world clothed and fed. You're the ones who deserve an ovation. Again, this podcast was sponsored by Ovation. To see how we can help you grow your business, go to ovationup.com. Don't forget to subscribe. And as always, remember to give someone in your life an ovation today.